0: my Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Hey, good morning again. Uh, it's good to have you guys join us today. Um, many of you guys know that my wife gave birth to twin boys back in May, and we've been in this whole process over the last couple of months. Well, I'm proud to announce that we've got both of our boys back from the hospital. Yeah. Uh, It's been um, 81 days um, for Chaz, who's there on the left, if you're keeping score at home, um, for him to be there in the hospital. We are just beyond grateful to be able to have um, our family all under one roof again. And so I know that many of you have been praying for us and supporting us and being very generous for us. Thank you. As this particular season of our life um, draws to a close and another one opens, um, we want to let you guys know that we couldn't do it without you. Um, and also, many of you know this: parenting is simply an exercise in the effects of sleep deprivation. So, if I seem a little bit beside myself, it's because we're still well, we're still getting used to this whole thing. But anyway, welcome to new life. Um, it's a joy to have you guys join us. We're going to be looking at the concept of slaves and masters. Out of Ephesians 6: five through9 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. And as you do, I want to um, give you two words that I hope will stick in your mind as we discuss this concept of slaves and masters out of Ephesians six. The two words that we're going to discuss here are relevant and potent. Relevant means simply that the Bible touches on an issue that all of us at some point in our life will face. That is, how our lives intersect the workplace. And how do we function as Christians within the marketplace? So the Bible's relevant for us. The Bible's also potent in the sense that it has the capacity to change us and those around us. My central contention is that if Scripture doesn't influence you on the day-to-day going-to-work level, then it may not influence you at all and so one of my heart's desires is that we're able to turn to scripture to be able to get something of some mileposts some some guidelines for how we ought to function as employers and employees within the Workplace. Now, let's put this in another way. I did some quick math. Say, for instance, you work, let's say, about 45 hours a week, about 50 weeks a year. Pencil this out. You're going to be working about 2,000, 2,200 hours a year. Now, the 45 hours a week is everything that you do in the space of your work. So that's getting dressed, that's your commute, um, that's the education you receive, that's the actual time behind the desk or on the job site. About 2,000, 2,200 hours a year, and if you do that for 45 years, say between the ages of 20 and 65, this includes your education, basically if you tally up everything that you're going to invest time-wise into your career in the marketplace, you'll get to about 100,000 hours. 100,000 hours. So the question I have for you today is, what will be the legacy of those 100,000 hours. Do you guys get the sense that when you put it in those terms, how much influence that you as a Christian in the marketplace have to be able to change perceptions of other people and glorify Jesus Christ with those 100,000 hours? That's my central hope for us today is that drawing on the text of Ephesians 5, that we'll get a chance to be able to use the time that God has given us in the marketplace to be able to give him glory. Let's pray, get into the text. Jesus, thank you that you've given us 100,000 hours. Help us not to waste them or to misuse them. God, we recognize that you're boss, no matter what our position is, and we're working for you. So God, help us as your kids uh, reflect well on you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The text in Ephesians um, 6, 5 through 9 reads like this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality With him. All right, now it would be easy to gloss over this and say that this text is referring to employers and employees, but you'll notice that that's not the words that Paul uses. The words Paul uses are slaves and masters. And this is kind of an interesting point because there have been people throughout history who have attacked the Bible and said that Paul is using essentially he is in support of slavery because nowhere does he outrightly say that slavery is wrong and ought to be abolished. So there are those who have throughout uh, history used scriptures like this to actually support the institution of slavery. But slavery is wrong, and so the question's worth asking, why didn't Paul come out and out to try to destroy it? So let's take a second to discuss this. The central idea here is that if you destroy the foundations, the house will fall. Okay. If you destroy the foundations, the house will fall. Throughout his writings, uh, Paul addresses the issue of slaves and masters here in Ephesians 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Colossians 3, and the entire book of Philemon all have to do with this subject. And every time that Paul addresses the issue, he's actually touching on the larger spiritual issue, which is this. That slaves and masters have the same heavenly master who knows all and sees all and watches all. So here's the big idea for Paul. The gospel is the gospel of reconciliation. What Jesus Christ has done for us through his death on the cross is provide a way for those who believe access to the Father. The Bible says that we have been reconciled to God. That's Ephesians chapter two. So what happens when two groups of people that are on the opposite end of the economic spectrum, slaves and masters, What happens when now both of them become reconciled to one God? By definition, one of the fruits of reconciliation to God is that you must also be reconciled to one another. You can't have it both ways. The Bible says in 1 John that if anyone says that they love God but hates his brother, that one is a liar, and the truth of God is not in him. See, if we've been truly reconciled to God, The gospel tells us that we must also be reconciled to one another. So Paul's objective wasn't simply to upend Roman culture. He wasn't going at the issue directly. He was going at the issue beneath the issue. You see, when the foundations of injustice and abuse are torn down, then the institution of slavery will necessarily crumble. Now, let's try to make an analogy maybe to a modern-day form of slavery and pornography. Pornography, like slavery, is built on a lie. The lie is this, the lie with pornography is that those involved in it are somehow less than human and can be treated as objects for your own gratification and pleasure. And when men or women get this idea into their head, there's no telling the depths of the depravity that will follow in the same way that we saw the depravity of slave owners in our American history. When you have a particular notion, a lie that you believe, you will act on it. So part of the solution to pornography is part of the solution to slavery is expose the lie and the foundation will crumble. So here's the lie. The lie says is that those in slavery or pornography aren't really human and we can do with them as we please. But what does God say? God says that all people are created in my image and have value quite apart from their performance and deserve honor and respect intrinsically as a part of who they are. And so part of the solution with pornography is to be able to see that those involved in the porn industry are loved by God, are cherished by God, are protected and cared for and want to be redeemed by God. I will tell you this, it is nearly impossible to both lust after and pray for the same person. When we get a sense for how strongly God cares for people, all people, then the foundation begins to crumble, right? And the house falls. So whether or not it's pornography or slavery, the fundamental issue is the same. Expose the lie and allow God's truth to replace it. So what was Paul trying to do? Paul wasn't trying to attack the issue directly. He was trying to get at the foundation that supported the whole institution, Because if he could see slaves and masters and tell them that, look, both of you are equal in the sight of God, deserving of respect and authority and good treatment, then the whole notion of abuse and exploitation of others would would be ridiculous. So you see how Paul is going after a deeper spiritual truth every time. So yes, Paul is absolutely against slavery, but he's going after not the symptoms, he's going after the root. And it's worth noting that history plays out that Paul was right. A couple of hundred years after the gospel begins to spread, slavery becomes a footnote in Roman history. Paul won because he went after the root, not just the weed. Paul writes... um, more to slaves than he does to masters, mostly because the Christians in early Ephesus tended to be of the lower social ranks. In fact, uh, some historians tell us that about 30% of the population of Ephesus, a town probably numbering about 3 million, about the size of the Portland metro area, one out of every three people was a slave. And slaves in the Roman Empire looked a little bit differently. We could talk about that But they looked a little bit differently than they do, say, in our American South experience. Most of the slaves were, if you would, kind of a a kind of domestic help. And so they became a part of the family. They were an integral part of how a household functioned. And so if you go back to Ephesians 5.21, which is kind of Paul's big thought, in which he says that I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's the main idea. And then he unpacks it in three separate spaces all related to the household. First, wives and husbands, then children and parents, and now slaves and masters. And he joined slaves and masters to those other two exactly because within the Roman context, a slave was oftentimes an integral part of the household, and so that relationship needed to be addressed as well. So look, let's look at what he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear. And trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye services, people-pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now let's take this apart piece by piece. The first word is "slaves." Now that's anybody who's under authority or an employee here within our 21st century marketplace. So whether or not you go to work and you've got a direct report and a supervisor and he's got a supervisor, or whether or not you're probably even the CEO and president of your company, chances are that you're still responsible to and accountable to your board of directors. So even though you may be at the top, you're still under a certain kind of authority if there's a sense of checks and balances. Those of you who are sole proprietors, small business owners, you're the only boss that there is, well, it's easy for you to recognize that ultimately you're working for Jesus. Regardless, when we talk about slaves, we're talking about anybody who's under a sense of authority. The next word is obey. This is the key verb in the passage. Obey comes to us in what's called the imperative tense. That means you must do this. This is the command. Every other phrase that we're about to look at explains and expands the kind of obedience that Paul wants us to develop towards who? He says, slaves obey your earthly masters. Now, it's a curious thought, isn't it? Why would Paul use the expression earthly masters? Why wouldn't he just simply say, slaves obey your masters? What's the implication by saying slaves obey your earthly masters? is it perhaps that there may be also a heavenly master above that earthly master? The implications of that fact, Paul's going to unpack here in just a second. All right, so the object of this obedience is to the earthly master, but this obedience is also to be with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Now, this is not groveling. Fear and trembling here in the context means giving due honor to the position Within the context of your workplace, for instance, about a year ago, I began to work for Pastor Ron. I've always, in a sense, worked for Pastor Ron as a, staff here, as a staffer here at the church, but I began to work more closely with him in his office. And you know what one of my first questions was? How does Ron like his coffee? I don't drink coffee, but I know that Ron occasionally enjoys a cup. And it means something to me to know that I know what kind of coffee my boss likes. Because that's a demonstration of respect that's specific to my workplace culture. So if you're a young person trying to get your feet on the ground in the right way in a job, one of the things I want to recommend that you do is ask the question, what does honoring and respecting my boss look like within the context of my workplace culture? Because it's going to be different depending on the context in which you work. But the question is, how do I honor and respect my boss with fear and trembling. So we are, as slaves, to obey the earthly master. We're supposed to do this with fear and trembling. But here's the key part. Not only are we supposed to do this, we're supposed to do it, the Bible says, with a sincere heart. Now this simply means be genuine. Let your, let your obedience and your honor and respect be authentic, an actual part of who you are. Now this is really tough for some of us. Because what do you do when your boss is a jerk? How many of you guys have had a bad day because your boss has had a bad day? Right? It's difficult. I happen to work with a guy who's pretty Christ-like. I hope you recognize that about Ron sometimes. It's easy for me to honor Ron because Ron's honorable. But what do you do in this position in which your boss is not? And those feelings of, you know, I could do a better job if they'd put me in charge. How do you honor somebody who you don't consider to be honorable? How do you function as a Christian in the marketplace when it's actually really difficult to, with a sincere heart? Because you know when you're faking. You can fake obedience and respect. But the Bible calls us to a deeper level. He says, I want you to do this with a sincere heart. So the question becomes how? The answer is found in the next phrase. As you would Christ. As you would Christ. We are supposed to obey our earthly masters in the same way that we would Christ. But my boss is nothing like Jesus. My boss is, you talk about your boss, and you just But here's the big truth out of the Bible. The big truth is you're not actually going to work each day for your boss, the one that you see and don't like. What you're actually doing is you're going to work every day, and your boss is Jesus. You've got one person in this world you're trying to please. It's Jesus. So that helps me When you try to, because oftentimes we tie honor and respect and obedience to somebody's personality or their performance. This tracks all the way back to husbands and wives and children and parents. How is a wife supposed to honor and respect a dishonorable husband? How is a parent or child supposed to honor and obey parents that are dishonorable? How are slaves supposed to honor and respect masters that are dishonorable? So for every group, Paul says the same thing. Obey, honor, respect. And doesn't say anything about the object of that obedience. So here's the big idea. You're honoring the position. You're submitting to authority. Because all authority, according to Romans 13, is there from God. So when you serve your boss, what I really want you to be thinking of is that you're serving Jesus Christ. And so, whether or not your boss deserves respect is immaterial. Part of your call as a Christian within the marketplace is to be able to function as an employee who can honor that person because of the position they hold and because you know ultimately that you 're serving jesus christ now there's a there 's a particular danger here when we talk about bad bosses. I have a huge respect. Nothing but respect for the entrepreneurial spirit. I think anybody that has the gumption and the courage to be able to get an idea and market it and raise the capital and do the hard, hard work of getting a business off of the ground, that's fantastic. That's amazing. But there's a danger in the entrepreneurial spirit and sometimes it tracks back to this bad boss experience. Because if you were an employee once and you got treated poorly and you said, I will never, ever you made a vow to yourself, I will never work for somebody else again because I don't deserve this kind of disrespect. And you Go off and you start your own business, congratulations! But there may be a seed of pride in your heart that you need to deal with. Because what will happen is that as you build that business, the pride that you never that that caused you to leave in the first place, it will keep you from recognizing that Jesus is still your boss, even as sole proprietor, that the business still belongs to him, that the skill set that you have to get wealth came from God Himself, and you'll be a hoarder and you'll be selfish because that pride issue still remains. And what's worse is that you may get somebody to actually come to work for you, but guess what, you may end up being that very same boss that you left behind years ago, and that employee will look at you and say, I swear I'll never work for somebody like you again, because that pride issue still remains. So I encourage everybody here, whether as an employee in a big corporation or as a sole proprietor, allow yourself the humility. Ask Jesus for the humility to be able to say that I can honor and respect those in a position of authority over me because I value authority and I'm really working for Jesus, not the guy I see in front of me. He goes on to say that this kind of obedience that bosses deserve is not only to be sincere, But uh, it's uh, not by way of eye service as a people pleaser. This simply means that you work as hard when the boss isn't looking as you do when he is. You work as hard when the boss isn't looking as you do when he is. When I was 17, I got a job as a dishwasher for a restaurant that had just opened. And because it had just opened, things were pretty slow. And so I had a habit of taking a spoon And going into the pantry where they kept the chest freezer and opening the chest freezer and inside was this pot of gold called Cascade ice cream. And I would open the top and I would dip my spoon deep into the ice cream and eat it right there on the job. And I knew that the menu said that a scoop of ice cream is $3.95, Now, I would never steal $3.95 from the till, but I had justified in my mind stealing the ice cream of equivalent value. Do you know why? It's because I had felt slighted by this employer. I didn't think that they were honoring my time, and I didn't think that they were paying me my due wage, and so I thought this ice cream is really what I deserve. Don't be like me. I was a sinner and an idiot. Anytime you find yourself in the job, on the job place justifying some dubious behavior, chances are that's sin. If you have to justify something in your own mind, chances are that's sin. So be above reproach and work as though, this is the key idea, right? Even if your boss isn't omniscient, your boss, capital B, is so don't be a people pleaser instead of being people pleasers we're supposed to obey as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service as a good will as to the Lord and not to men now this is a restatement of Paul's big idea that slaves are really serving Christ by being sincerely excellent at the task in front of them and honoring the person that gave them that task let me say that again In your job place, you honor Jesus by being sincerely and joyfully excellent at the task in front of you and obeying and respecting the person who gave you that task. The object of your motivation at work isn't your boss or the money. It's exalting Christ through honoring your boss and being very good at what you do because in that way you are really honoring Jesus in profound ways even when you're stuck in the mundane areas of your your job. This is only possible if you grasp the central idea. The big central idea is that Jesus is your boss. Ultimately, you'll give account to one person. It's Jesus And when you begin to shift your perspective away from your earthly master to your heavenly one, all of a sudden your motivation begins to change. Because now you're not here and you're you're not here as a part of an organization to add value to that organization primarily. You must, absolutely, as a good employee, but what you're supposed to do is reflect well on the kingdom of God by honoring your boss who is in heaven. Are you guys seeing the connection between being a faithful, solid, respectful, obedient employee and someone who brings glory to God who is in heaven? I hope that none of you feel like somehow you're a second-rate Christian because you're not involved in full-time ministry. Listen, I happen to work in a church office. It is really tough to do ministry in my neck of the woods. Do you know why? Everybody's already saved. I tried talking to Sam Flaherty about Jesus. He already knew. What am I supposed to do? I can't do anything with that. But here's the opportunity that you have. Tomorrow morning, you'll get up and you'll go to work and you'll be surrounded by people, many of whom who don't know Jesus and all of whom are asking a question. If you were in church on Sunday, does it have any traction in your life on Monday? And what my heart's desire is, is that Christians become people of influence and honor and respect in their workplace because you've got 100,000 hours to reflect well on the kingdom of God there. So if we miss this, we miss a huge portion of our life. This is the big idea. You go to work every day, even when it's tough, because Jesus is your boss, and you're called to a higher standard, and people want to know, does your Christianity make any difference in the way that you function within the context of the workplace? Verse 8 is a promise then that nothing honorable you do will go unnoticed by God. So what's the kickback for you if you actually track the hard road of being an honorable employee in a very difficult situation? Here's what the Bible says in verse eight. It says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. So don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't say, screw it. It's not worth it. Nobody cares. Nobody sees. I'm just lost in the shuffle. Don't give up. Maintain your principles and your values. Let me tell you this. It is easier to maintain your principles as a Christian 100% of the time than it is 98% of the time. Do you know why? Because that one time you compromised... And the justification that you gave it, the explanation, the excuse you drummed up to compromise your principles, there's nothing stopping you from doing that again and again in the future. So maintain your value. Maintain your principles 100% of the time. Don't think that there's small compromises. There's not. Because the Bible says, look, if you continue to do good, God will honor you. This doesn't mean that you're going to get promoted every time that you deserve it. What it means is that in the economy of the kingdom of God, God is after what? A servant must be found what? Faithful. And friends, if you're faithful in the small things, you will also be faithful in much. So don't despise the small things of your work do them with excellence and do them well, knowing that your Father in heaven looks down and is pleased and knows the integrity that you have as an employee in the marketplace. Do the small things well. And this is the beautiful promise of Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. 29. He says, do you see a man who's skillful in his work? What will happen to this one? It says, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Stand before kings because your skillfulness and the excellence and the diligence that you've demonstrated over your career has made you one that when a king has a question, I know just who to call. Be a man who's skillful in his work. Close with verse nine. Did you notice five, six, seven, and eight all had to do with slaves and masters get one verse. So masters, listen up. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no partiality with him. This is the revolutionary concept of Paul's day and age. Masters in first century Ephesus had unilateral, authoritative control over the life and future of their slaves. They could do whatever they wanted with them without impunity. And what Paul is saying to masters is, masters, in the same way that slaves are told to respect you and honor you and seek your good and obey you, you do the same to them. That means as a master, one of your primary responsibilities is to enhance the life of the people who work underneath you, that you take the sphere of responsibility that you've been given, and that includes people And you steward that well. Bosses are to seek the good of their employees with the same fervor that employees are to honor and obey their bosses. So this is somewhat revolutionary because through most of the industrial age, an employee was simply a cog in a machine who showed up every day to do a job, to add value to the corporation, to increase the bottom line, and ultimately line the pockets of the shareholders. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Masters, if you're in a position of authority, one of your primary responsibilities is the care and betterment of the people in your authority, under your authority. Part of your job is to make their job better. I bumped into this interesting book. It's called, How Will You Measure Your Life? It's written by that fellow who's a professor at Harvard School of Business. He says, I concluded that if you want to help other people be a manager... If done well, management is one of the most noble of professions. You are in a position where you have eight or ten hours every day from every person who works for you. Think about that for a a moment. You have the opportunity to frame each person's work so that at the end of every day, your employees will go home feeling like they are living a life filled with motivators. Management is noble. Management has the power to be able to influence people in profound ways. So if you're in a position of authority, be careful because people are watching you. I had a man once who owns a business. He says, I'm aware that every single one of my employees is looking at my face when I walk into the office this day because they're looking to see whether or not today is going to be a good day. Management is an honorable thing if done well because you have the opportunity to steward the people's times who works for you. As long as we're talking about good books, uh, several others I want to recommend to you. Uh, first, if you want anything about business, read Proverbs. Seriously, Proverbs is packed with solid knowledge about how to be a good employee and how to be a good master, so I recommend that highly um, a couple other ones in but not of you can pick it up for about thirteen bucks online a guide to Christian ambition and the desire to influence the world. This is especially helpful if you 're in the sixteen to twenty six set um, and you 're looking to try to figure out what you 're going to do with your life. Uh, pretty handy read if you 're a little older if you 're in the business world already, business for the glory of God the bible's teaching on the moral goodness of business. Fantastic book written by um, a theologian who looks at principles like profit-making, inequality of possessions, um, the ownership of goods, all of those things, and say each of those is inherently good because it honors Jesus Christ. Take you probably about 60 minutes to read the book. Well worth your time. I want to get back to the text, though. Paul also encourages masters to stop your threatening. Be natural that if you had um, absolute control over someone that you would yell at them. Paul says, stop it. Stop your threatening. And here's why. He says, knowing that you also have a master who is in heaven and he judges all without partiality. Did you know that God gives the rich and the poor the same treatment? Loves them both. What happens when somebody yells at their employees or maybe by extension at their kids is that what's underlying that behavior is a fundamental notion that says, I'm better than you because I'm in authority. The Bible says no. The Bible says that all people have the same value. It's only recently that in the corporate world we've kind of caught on to this idea. I bumped into this article on the Wall Street Journal this week. It's called, When Your Boss is a Screamer says, when the yelling boss appears to be quietly disappearing from the workplace, this I find to be pretty funny. The new consensus among managers is that yelling alarms people. Yes. Brilliant revelation. It drives them from their work, and rather than inspiring them, hurts the quality of their work. Anybody been yelled at by their boss and then felt better about themselves? Rarely. Some bosses also fear triggering a harassment lawsuit or winding up as the star of a coworker's cell phone videotape gone viral. Careful, YouTube is always watching you. Don't yell. Masters, you're not better than your servants. There's a master in heaven who knows you both and judges without partiality. All right, let's recap, bring it to a close. The big idea is this. Jesus is your boss. And this is true whether you're in the janitor's closet or the corner office. Each of you will be ultimately responsible to answer to one person, Jesus Christ. Those of you who are under authority, if you're under authority, your primary responsibility is to honor and obey the person who is your authority and to pursue excellence in everything that you do So, specifically, this means sincere obedience and respect while trying to be a person who is skillful in their work. For those of you who are in authority, this means using your position of influence to better the lives of the people who work for you, all the while knowing that in God's eyes, there's no difference between the CEO and the intern. Jesus is your boss. And as Christians in the marketplace, I want to encourage you to look at the 100,000 hours that God has given you to influence the people around you and use that for good in the kingdom of God and be a solid, consistent witness to the fact that when business is done right, it honors and glorifies Jesus Christ most of all. Jesus said it himself, be a light set on a hill so that when people see your good work they will honor and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not about us. It's about functioning in such a way that when people see us, they honor and glorify the Father who's in heaven. That's the big idea. That's the key motivation, for I want you to get up on Monday morning and say, you know what, I'm going to work today to glorify Jesus. I wanna invite our prayer teams and our worship team to come forward, and let's just pray. God, I ask that you give us willing and humble and submitted hearts to the authority that has been placed in our lives. God, if you can't change them, then at least change us. Help us to recognize the ways that we've been slacking off um, or overworking because we don't have faith that you'll actually provide for us. God, give us the capacity to honor you. Please, Lord, help us to be excellent in everything that we do, to pursue excellence not mediocrity. Lord, we're living for your glory. We're not out to make money, although we recognize that money gives us a lot of opportunities to influence other people. We're out to honor and glorify you. So God, help us to burn with a passion that says, I'm living for your glory, and Jesus, you are my boss, and I hold, I hold myself to a higher standard.